0: The Coin Week podcast is brought to you by PCGS, the standard in the coin grading industry. For more information about PCGS's current slate of grading specials, visit www.pcgs.com. In this episode of the Coin Week podcast, we talked to John Kralovich, noted expert on U.S. coins, Americana a fellow alumnus of the University of Virginia and also a candidate for the State House of South Carolina in District 26. John and I talk about cataloging the great coins in the American Federal Series, what his area of specialty Americana says to us about the American experience and how we can take from them a deeper and more personal understanding of the hardships and struggles of each generation of Americans. Hi, John. Thanks for joining me on the Coin Week Podcast.
1: Of course. Thanks for having me.
0: So you've been a very busy coin dealer over the past couple of years. Maybe coin dealer isn't the optimal word because it seems that you've been involved in a number of important things in your life that have taken you outside of the role that you normally play. From working on your first political campaign to uh, nearly two years of extensive work that you put into cataloging the landmark multi-million dollar Pogue collection for Stax Bowers. What have these past few years been like for you?
1: Well, uh, you know, it it keeps it constantly interesting. Uh, I I have found that whenever I I do a project, no matter what sort of project it is, I devote sort of all of my heart and all of my mind to it and then quickly move on to to something else. So when I'm cataloging, uh, as my customers, I'm sure, can tell you, Pretty much all I'm doing is cataloging, and it's, it's very hard for me to do multiple things well at once, uh, so I, I'm not the sort of person that can wake up on a Tuesday morning and say, I'm going to catalog for four hours, and then I'm going to sell coins for four hours, then I'm going to do something else. When I'm cataloging, it's pretty much sunup to sundown, or well beyond sundown, as, as the case usually is, cataloging just constantly. So it's, it's nice to have a, a sort of semi-structured schedule whereby I can do a project do my best job at it, um, really nail it, and then move on to something else.
0: I collect uh, numismatic literature, I think, more than anything at this point. Uh, And I'm sure you have your share of numismatic books and and, and ephemera. But one of my favorite things to collect are periodicals. Uh, I love to go back and see, you know, the way the coin collecting industry not only presented itself in ads and through stories, but also how we as an industry presented this hobby uh, from the question of why we collect coins to what constituted a quality coin or uh, what were the hot and interesting areas worthwhile of uh, collecting pursuit and all of these things seem to change to me over time and for me it's fascinating because if you look closely you can see how radically different the coin market is now From even 10 or 15 years ago. Um, As an aside, you know, I also enjoy seeing images of our younger selves. Uh, So in that light, it's always fun to look at one of those old numismatic periodicals and see these uh, A&R ads where uh, you can see the young John Kralovich breaking into the industry as a young pup. Oh, yes. Obviously, at the time, A&R was known as a leading national auction firm. What is the difference in the way coin auction catalogs were produced then, and what you had to do to complete a series of catalogs that uh, you wrote for the sale of the Poe collection? Well,
1: uh, certainly my my cataloging style has changed uh, quite a bit from then till now. Uh, one of the principal ways it's changed is is back then um, when I was writing for ANR. I was a single guy, um, I didn't have a family, I didn't have kids, so I could pretty much stay up all night in a binge of writing and research and, uh, um, you know, fall down some research rabbit hole until three and four o'clock in the morning and just and just chase it until I found the answer I was looking for. I can't do that anymore because <laughs> my wife gets mad at me. Um, so now I've had to go in with a little bit more structure on a daily basis um, and sort of set up uh more i guess you'd call them rolling deadlines especially for a, a project as as big as, uh, as big as pogue and really take one bite out of it at a time um, before pogue um while i did some expensive stuff um the usual catalog description on even the most expensive item might take me you know a day to write something like that but with pogue it was so research heavy and so evident from the quality of the coins that what I was writing was going to be remembered for a long time just by virtue of what the coins were and and how important uh, they were, Um, that some of those descriptions would take me a week, um, which didn't always make the uh, catalog company Bean Counters terribly happy. Um, And it's probably sort of tough to understand just for people who read the catalogs, like, yeah, it's nice, it's six pages long, but how could that possibly take you a week to write? Um, but when you're writing the finest note of something that hasn't been described in public in 40 years, you kind of want to take your one single best shot at it. So that's what I tried to do with Pogue, as opposed to other things that while expensive or important, you kind of knew you'd see something else like that come down the road in two or four or five years.
0: What were some of your favorite descriptions, uh, from a prose research point of view? Uh, and which coin do you think was the most difficult to get done? Oh, that's a hard question. Probably the best research in that catalog is not research
1: I actually did. Uh, David Tripp um, really nailed down who Lord St. Oswald was. Um, and being able to sort of piggyback on top of his research and kind of press the envelope of what he found further on, that was really exciting. And and he and I worked very, very well together on those Lord St. Oswald pieces. Um. The coppers were always uh, my favorites. Uh, I mean, I came into this as sort of a a copper and large-cent weenie when I was, you know, 10 or 11 or 12 years old. So being able to write um, really spectacular quality um, large-cent descriptions and half-cent descriptions, too, um, being able to, to, to work on those descriptions meant a lot to me personally because as a kid... I remembered reading about these exact coins uh and sometimes seeing them in the hands of of other collectors um in terms of what research was most satisfying any time that I could take a coin and take a provenance that was known back to say the you know fifties or sixties or whatever and add another century onto that, which happens several times over the course of catalog, usually more through dumb luck than hard work. Um, that was really, really satisfying. The 1785 ten-dollar gold piece, for instance, um, that was the Garrett coin. So everybody knew where it had been. Uh, of course, you know, since since Garrett, but before Garrett, it turns out it had come from a European collection of uh, sort of a, a a petty prince somewhere in Germany in the 1860s. So being able to trace that coin all the way back to its European origins, that was really exciting and
0: satisfying. Did any of these descriptions give you fits in terms of uh, getting it finished to the satisfaction of the auction house or the consigner? Were there any coin descriptions that you had to write over and over again? There were lots of fits and starts,
1: undoubtedly. Um, When I was trying to write, particularly the Pogue catalogs, but really any big description now, I'm trying to go not only for an accurate description, it's something that, that sort of moves the football forward in terms of research and what we know about this coin, and whatever peripheral story was around it. But as you may recall with the Pope descriptions, each coin had a little quote above it, some line taken from some original research source that I somehow had to bring to bear in the description. And some of them were from contemporary newspaper advertisements, some of them were quotes from unpublished letters written by collectors who had once owned the coin. So when you've got, let's say, A handful of coins from 1827, none of which are really all that interesting. I mean, yeah, they're the the finest known and all that sort of thing. But beyond that, they're just, you know, nice coins of their type. Trying to find a, quote, somehow related to a miscellaneous 1827, you pick the denomination. Trying to figure out which one to use for which coin and how to find something from an original source that had never been published before, which was always my goal that would actually allow me to sort of vault into a story that was maybe about this coin, but at least Told some aspect of this coin's history or story that was difficult once the writing started, usually the writing went went pretty well and you know i'd have to take breaks and go catalog something else and come back and and that sort of thing but but really nailing down the arc of the narrative, uh, kind of identifying the coin as a character and then figuring out where the story would go with that character as the central piece. Um, so it's almost like writing a short story or something, but it's a short story that you're trying to incorporate brand new, never before published research into. And I, I will admit that I put a lot of pressure on myself to never let a single description go without adding something that had never been researched before. So if you take your time and actually pick all the way through the Poe catalogs, there's a lot of stuff in there that really
0: doesn't appear anywhere else. When you were writing that catalog, did you have the coins in hand? You know, I imagine having uh, the coins in hand would have added tremendously to a writer's ability to really capture the essence of a coin. Uh, which one would think would really help the auctioneer engender excitement?
1: When I first agreed to um, work as a cataloger remotely, in other words, once I had, n- had no longer lived um, you know, near where the, the companies I worked for were housed, Uh, I agreed um, with the management that I would never, ever catalog a coin um, that I couldn't see and study in hand. So I will never catalog from photographs. I just don't do it. I know a lot of companies do it. Um, I don't want to cast aspersions on those companies. But for me, I think it's unethical to set yourself up as an expert describing a particular coin that you've never actually laid eyes on. I just don't think it's the right way to do things. So that being said... It was usually cheaper for me to get shipped to the coins than for the coins to get shipped to me um, because the coins, of course, being of such great value, typically needed armored car transport and that sort of thing. So over the course of the poke catalog, uh, typically what would happen is I would fly up to New York City for two, three, four days, whatever I could fit into uh, my family schedule with my wife's work and, you know, kids band and all of that sort of thing. And I'd fly up to New York, and I'd spend a few days with the coins in front of me, and I would do all of the work I needed to do uh, with the coins actually in hand. So all of the uh, description of the surfaces, the way the coins looked, all that sort of uh, aesthetic impression stuff, and then all of the really nitty-gritty technical stuff that I thought I couldn't get from a photograph. So that included die states, um, uh, you know, that that sort of thing, striking characteristics and whatnot. Now, after I did that, I would have this file of of half-cooked descriptions, and I would go home, and I would have really, really super high-quality photographs that you could blow up as big as the face of the moon, um, many of which were taken by PCGS, uh, particularly by Phil Arnold there, um, some of which were taken by the Stax Bowers Gallery's uh, photographic staff, and uh, I would go home with these pictures um, and with my surface descriptions that I already wrote with the coins in front of me. And then from there, I would start the exacting process of trying to identify or further the provenance chain. And sometimes that started with me literally sitting with a pile of plated 19th and early 20th century catalogs, just flipping through them, looking for coins that seemed like, uh, they were of the quality that might appear in the Pogue collection. Uh, and then from there, once I satisfied myself that I pushed the provenance as far as I could, most of the time I started more or less from scratch. There were some pedigree notes that accompanied the, the uh, collection, but, but not as much as you might think. Um, once I did the pedigree work, then it was on to telling the whole story. So uh, relating the excitement of what the coin looks like, with the excitement of whatever uh, historical interest the coin might have as either an object for commerce or an object for collectors.
0: So how much of this provenance and condition census information, let's uh, just call it institutional knowledge about these coins, especially the high-end ones, how much of this is settled math by now? Uh, Where if you were an astute researcher, or especially coin dealer, that you'd pretty much know these coins. They're comparables and how they fit into the big picture in terms of rarity and desirability. Are we still in a position where much of this information is imperfect and there is no consensus among experts when it comes to the classic U.S. coins? Are are we dealing with a series of knowns for the most part?
1: So because I'm a UVA guy and and you're a UVA guy, I will will answer this with a Thomas Jefferson quote. Uh, So Jefferson was of the belief that the U.S. Constitution should be written every 30 years or so, uh, that every generation had the right to decide its own laws, and he said that the earth is left in usufruct to the living, which is a, a 50 cent expression for basically saying um, every living generation uh, needs to abide by their own rules and principles, and not and not be uh, uh, held hostage to what those before them had thought. And I would say that with uh, conditioned census kind of stuff, it's the same thing. Case change. Um, as much as we might not want to believe it, coins change, uh, and a lot of the received wisdom uh, comes down with some sort of inherent bias. Um, for instance, large cents have a a, a wonderful. Uh, field of condition census work uh, that's been done for uh, generations now. Um, the last generation was principally spearheaded by Dell Bland along with a lot of other folks. So there's a pretty good idea of, uh, you know, new discoveries notwithstanding, there's a pretty good idea of what the, say, top 5 or 10 or 20 coins of any particular variety are. Now that being said, a lot of that work has depended upon um, individual people's tastes. Uh, it's depended sometimes upon studying photographs rather than coins. Um, and you know how I feel about that. Um, it sometimes depends upon um, coins remaining in the same state of preservation as they were prior to their uh, documentation. Um, and for better or for worse, sometimes coins change naturally. Sometimes they change through the human force of greed um and what was once the finest known or the fourth finest known might sometimes go down a couple pegs. Uh and, and on the uh, on the other side of that coin, uh sometimes a coin is properly conserved and you know, has lacquer taken off of it or something, and it might come up several steps. Um my opinion, not widely held, is that condition census listings um and this would go into a greater critique of, of of sort of how we do our numerical grading and whatnot i tend to think the condition census listings are completely useless um because each person has their own idea of uh, what makes a coin nice or not nice and it's basically impossible to compare most of the kinds of coins we're talking about pre-1834 US coins in particular it's basically impossible to compare them and say, objectively, this is finest, this is second finest, this is third finest. Um, The best-case scenario for that sort of experiment would be to have the ten best coins and line them all up and say, this one's obviously better than this one, this one's better than that one, but that never, ever happens. So what we're left with is a whole bunch of different people comparing coins, maybe using a whole bunch of different standards, and it inevitably gets a little bit muddled up.
0: A few years ago, uh, Hubert and I had a column, uh, an N.O.G. award-winning column, uh, that we published in the Numismatists. And if you haven't read it, you should go back and check it out, because in it, we tried to discuss theoretical numismatics, which was a way of viewing the coin market through the use of hypothetical devices. It was a lot of fun to write and to think about. And one of the threads in that column, and something we explored just a little bit, was a thought experiment where we created a super-collector. And this super-collector knew everything about the coin market. He knew the particulars of every coin, he had unlimited time and money, and uh, was determined to have the best example of every coin. This rational collector, uh, if he or she would have existed in real life, would probably impact the rare coin market in very real and striking ways. In some respects, the Poe collection for the period it covered might be as close as we get to such a hypothetical, rational collector building a grand set of coins. But even in this instance, where money was apparently no object, the coins selected for the set were constrained by very real market realities. It's arguable in several cases that they had the best coin for the date or variety. While typically they had the best or one of the best, there were other examples where there were examples known of the coins that had come to the market during the time they were buying, yet... The pokes kept their powder dry and didn't pick up everything they could have, which gets me back to the idea that even now, with as much as we know, the rare coin market can still be opaque and what is the best of the best is still debated. In nearly every case, unless there is
1: some obvious stand-apart coin that just blows every other coin out of the water, which happens with some things. There's some cases where one coin is very clearly, you know, five or ten points finer. Um, But when not, you're inevitably challenged with a judgment call. And and so, you know, Dr. Sheldon used to make the whole joke that ownership adds five points and that's sort of one of those, you know, coin collector ha-ha knee-slappers. But the point stands that everybody thinks theirs is the best because they're defining their own standards. And we have gotten into this sort of trap in the 21st century, really since um, third-party certification has taken over, that the coin with the numerically higher certified grade is clearly the better one. Um, But a lot of collectors, particularly before third-party grading, uh, would just evaluate quality in different ways that would allow for greater fungibility of what is finest note. For instance, if there's one coin that is just dramatically fresh, extraordinary luster, spot-on color, just has that look, but has a couple of very natural minor marks, or say a a striking issue, it's a little weakly struck, or or what have you. Uh, And then there's another coin that lacks those marks and is maybe technically of a higher grade, but just doesn't quite have the oomph. The color's weird, or the toning's odd, or, again, has a striking thing. How do you compare those two coins? And obviously this is sort of the issue that third-party grading services were sort of invented to resolve so that someone could always say, no, this is better. But I just don't think that's possible. Uh, I think that's that's sort of like, you know, judging works of art. Well, the Mona Lisa is clearly better than this other painting. Well, some of this is still beauty in the eye of the beholder stuff, which is what makes all of this fun. But it also becomes very frustrating when particularly new collectors, uh, especially those who have the resources to build the best, Inevitably get caught into this trap where well, you know, name your grading services, that seen all this co- all these coins, and they've determined that this one's the best. Well, you know there are different graders with different sets of eyeballs graded at different times. There are lots of lots of factors that make what we consider in the business objective, but as a uh, aesthetical student of these coins is very clearly subjective. So with the the Poe collection, um, I would say that, say, the gold coins, which I think if you go back and look at the numbers, were probably the ones that did the best uh, versus their pre-sale expectations. The gold coins were collected with an eye for quality in the pre-grading era. So they were collected for eye appeal and extraordinary color and things that made them stand on their own back when we didn't have to worry about the uh, numerical grades, whereas some of the other series were collected with numerical quality, perhaps more at the forefront, like, say, the copper coins. And so you ended up with a lot of coins that were finest knowns, but maybe weren't the prettiest known, or maybe weren't everyone's favorite, which is not to cast dispersions on the coins they got. They were just collected with a slightly different perspective. Uh, And I think it's valuable to, to look at those distinctions and understand that there's really no right way, nor is there any objective way to say that one coin is clearly better than another, at least at a
0: certain quality level. So in your own specialty, I mean, obviously, you can hold your own with any of the classic coin dealers. But you are a devoted student of numismatic Americana. I would say that just as it's important to study and collect the coins of the realm, it's also important to look at numismatic items that are not traditionally money. I've always felt that the heart and soul of our hobby resides within the stories that numismatic objects tell. And Americana tells the story quite well. What made you take this path less traveled and take up this area of specialization?
1: Well, um there there's a few reasons. My my academic or or professional background if you want to call it that, is really more that of a historian as a student um, than as someone who was ever a whole filling collector. I've always loved coins. Um, I've enjoyed collecting them since I was a very, very little kid, but I was never the guy that sat down with a Whitman album and said, all right, well, all I need is a 26S and I'll finally finish that set. That was never me. Um, so I was always attracted to things that had great history and a great story uh, and something that I could explain to someone who had no particular interest in, say, coin collecting and have them understand why it was desirable to me. Um, and so that was what sort of drew my attention to things like colonial coins, colonial paper money, uh, medals and tokens, uh, particularly because those things are what told the story of the periods of U.S. history that I was most interested in. Um, now, that kind of dovetailed with the fact that that when I was collecting as a kid, I could buy a really great metal for next to nothing, whereas, say, a 34 SP dollar costs all kinds of money. Um, so there was that attraction also. Now, as tastes have evolved, some of the things that I really loved as a kid, um, because they were rare and historic but also happened to be not all that expensive – Some of those have gotten rather expensive. So I'm not sure if that is a a good thing or a bad thing, but that's just kind of what's happened over the last 30 years or or whatever. Um, The very first major collection that I ever cataloged um, on my own, I helped out with the Harry Bass collection and helped out with a few other things. Um, in that era in the late 90s, um uh, turn of the 21st century. But the first very specialized collection I ever did was a collection of, of Betz medals. So medals from, uh, the colonial period of American history, uh, that were formed by a guy named Lucien Le Riviere, um, who was, uh, actually a, a tailor. He ran a, a bridal shop, uh, in Providence, Rhode Island. And I had had some experience with Betz medals before and enjoyed them and, and collected them. But that sort of launched me, I guess, on this sort of vector of Nimbus Americana, whereby because I got to catalog that one really cool collection, I all of a sudden found myself being called the expert on this stuff just because I was the guy that happened to have done it. Um, there's an old Will Rogers quote about uh, an expert being anyone more than 50 miles from home with a briefcase, and that's kind of how I used to feel about these metals. I was just the guy with the briefcase, um, but as time has gone on, now it's been almost 20 years, And it's been my my sort of principal devotion ever since. And I've gotten to see and handle a a lot of the best stuff
0: in that area. You know, one of the things I really like about Americana, you know, when you break it down, when you look at federal coin issues struck through our nation's history, these objects represent the image that the government would like to present to Americans and to people abroad. The story told by tokens or medals, medallions, especially objects not of official government sanction or issue, These objects sometimes tell a much more fascinating story, a story of political, social, and economic issues, the struggles of ordinary people, small and sometimes big stories. And these stories and objects are very important.
1: I I completely agree. Um, And in my uh, sort of (laughs) non-professional numismatic writing and and collecting, uh, one thing that I've tried to pursue is stuff that sort of tells that um, history of the American underclass. Um, whether it be minorities who faced oppression or an economic underclass or the sort of people that were left out of that dominant narrative of um, CEOs and presidents and generals and all that sort of thing. Um, That narrative tends to be very male. It tends to be very white. It tends to be very skewed uh, towards people of wealth and rank. Um, but you know i don't know about you but i'm a welders kid you know there are there are lots and lots of americans obviously the vast majority of us um, who are are not those things um, but the, the joys of numismatics is when you get down to um, items of trade things that are meant to be used in commerce or some of these other kind of related things whether they be advertising notes or medals or or you know store card tokens or what have you um, there's something that tells the story of everyone. For instance, um we're recording this uh on the day that marks the announcement of Washington, DC's just the District of Columbia's uh Emancipation Proclamation. Um, in eighteen sixty two the formerly enslaved folks who lived in the District of Columbia uh, were freed by Act of Congress. And this, this happened, um, years before, um, they were freed under the Constitution, uh, and, uh, nearly a year before the Emancipation Proclamation, um, freed those who were enslaved in Confederate-held territory. Um, there is a very small group of pieces that were produced ostensibly as, um, military dog tags, as ID badges for soldiers. But there's a small group of them that were prepared by some sutler working in Washington, D.C., as identification badges um, for those who lived within the District of Columbia um, and marked the day of their freedom. Um, There's maybe 10 or 15 of these things known. And these are things that, they're not money, um, and I guess there are some out there that would say they aren't numismatic, but these hung around the necks of folks who went from slave to free to mark that exact moment when they obtained their freedom. And it's so personal and so historic, and there's really not another object anywhere in the world of material culture, numismatic or not, that records that moment with as much uh, drama and certainty as these things do. And while they're rare and for things of their ilk, they're relatively expensive, they cost less than you might pay for a common date wheat scent in 67 red. And I don't mean to cast aspersions on people that like really shiny wheat scents, but to me there's no choice. I, I mean, one is a piece that means something to a coin collector, and the other is the sort of thing that would stop someone walking through a museum in their tracks. Uh, so I agree with you. I think numismatics, um, as a um, as a discipline, offers a really great way to interpret the lives of all Americans, or all world citizens, if you will, um, in a way that perhaps other collectibles don't.
0: You know, you bring, you bring up a great story, and it's not an American piece, but it reminds me greatly of the Ludd's Ghetto coinage struck during World War II. In Primo Levi's book, The Drowned and the Save, the author and Holocaust survivor writes about returning to the site of the Ludd's Ghetto many years later and having on him a piece of this Lud's Ghetto coinage in his pocket. And the fact that this object served as a totem for Levy, a way to touch and hold on to memory, even as he is walking along the very streets that he had been before, shows the psychedelic nature of a numismatic object. These are pieces of metal with something stamped on them, but the deeper meaning lies not with the art or the metal, but with something altogether different, that human emotion that the object manifests on us.
1: Uh, I've done similar things myself. Um, I've put a Palmetto Regiment medal in my pocket. Um, these were medals that were given out by the state of South Carolina um, to the men, but in most cases to the survivors uh, of, of soldiers who fought uh, from South Carolina in the Mexican-American War in the late 1840s. Uh, and I've done that exact same thing where I've put one in my pocket, and found the burial site of the recipient, and taken that medal there, and just sort of pondered um, the fact that somebody today in in 21st century South Carolina, really the only reason that person is remembered at all, aside from someone picking weeds around a tombstone, is the fact that that medal exists. So there is a sort of you know um, cosmic moment when you when you're able to sort of um, connect a relic um, to the earthly remains of the person who first earned it. I think there's, that's
0: something really special about what we do. Let's play a quick game here. I'm going to mention a piece or genre of Americana and you riff on what these pieces tell us about a time in American history. We'll see how it goes. So, uh, I'll start off with, uh, Andy Jackson, hard times tokens. <laughs> They're wonderful. Um, so Andy Jackson, hard times tokens are, are political
1: pieces, um, uh, at their, the base of their nature um, that were produced in the 1830s and 1840s um, in the lead-up to uh, and nadir of the Panic of 1837. Uh, and they're basically metallic political cartoons, um, but it, rather than just being a printed media that might land on your doorstep, uh, these are things that, uh, that almost hacked into our currency system. These are things that, by virtue of looking like a coin enabled someone to pass a message just the same way as someone would pass along money. So they advantageously used a particular medium, in this case a coin-like item that could be um, transferred for a, a good or service, as a way to spread their message. So it's 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 a, a victory of both brilliant guerrilla marketing uh, and a great modern look into um, a crisis that, uh, that had echoes throughout the 19th and even 20th centuries.
0: What about Civil War tokens? You know, while it seems like the Andy Jackson hard times tokens were lampooning Jackson, who many people blamed on the economic instability which followed the closing of the Bank of the United States and led to the hard times of 1837, were American Civil War tokens an expression of fervent patriotism during these difficult times?
1: Well, I, I, would, I would sort of take another tact um, whereby what we today call patriotic Civil War tokens uh, were really just a way for people to make some money. Uh, these things were available to shopkeepers um, for say, um, 80 bucks a, a, a thousand or, or what have you. They were available at a discount. And since coins had by and large disappeared from circulation, um, they enabled the shopkeepers to make a, a small profit with everyone distributed. So they sort of wore the fig leaf, of patriotic spirit, when in fact, they were just one more way for a shopkeeper to make a little bit of money um, off of their customer base. Uh, and that would go for both the, the store, store card types, which today are collected for being interesting advertising and you know hyper-local issues, uh, as well as what we would tend to call the patriotic issues. What about the Bryant dollar? What does that class of objects say? Well, uh, I think one thing it says is, is that people were much more interested in policy then than they are now. Uh, I mean, if you look at Brian dollars, uh, and most of them are, of course, anti-Brian rather than pro-Brian, uh, and talking about the, the very nitty-gritty aspects of of free coinage of silver, um, which was a uh, basically a policy decision that favored wealthy Westerners um, over, say, Eastern debtors, um, the the fact that people produced collectible and decorative pieces that riffed on a certain pretty wonky section of political policy, uh, I, I think points out a, a pretty extraordinary difference between the political culture then and the political culture now. <laughs> so I, I I find them very interesting, mostly for uh, the idea of of the folks that um, produced and consumed them more than anything they might say in particular.
0: So did the air get let out of the tire as far as the uh, 20th century issues go? I mean, I'm aware that there were myriad private issues struck in the 20th century and mostly for profit, you know, so-called dollars, art medals, and other pieces. We saw many issues struck in the uh, 1890s to 1930s that celebrated uh, regional events and anniversaries. Uh, In fact, the classic commemorative coin boom of the 30s was an extension of this trend uh, and a corrupted one at that. But... Were there, you know, a number of social and political tokens and medals made in the 20th century that sort of echo uh, what was happening in the 19th century? And and if they were produced, are they considered collectible today? I would think so. Uh, And and most of them really don't cost much of anything.
1: Um, For instance, uh, you may have read something I wrote about a pool hall token issued in Tulsa about 1915. Um, which is the sort of thing that, you know, it, it's rare, but if you had some luck, you might, you might fish one of these things out of a junk box. They don't look like anything. But this was a, a token um, that was issued by one of the businesses that was ransacked and burned during the Tulsa race riots in 1921. Um, And one reason that the tokens are so rare today and so often found in in crummy condition um, has to do with the fact that that the the business that probably held all or most of the uh, extant specimens at that time was ransacked and burned. Um, And in in the particular case of, of, of this pool token, the fellow who was responsible for issuing the tokens it's just this fascinating character that lends a lot of insight uh, into post-World War I segregation in Oklahoma, uh, into Jim Crow uh, in the Lower Plains um, before World War II, uh, and there's a lot of stuff like that. Um, coal miner script from the 1930s um, that, that kind of brings up the history of labor strife, that brings up the history of the company store, um, you know, Tennessee Ernie Ford style. Um, And these are things that that don't cost anything. I mean, the the Coal Company script, I mean, some of these things are worth, you know, 10 or 25 cents each, but they are rich with that that history of some of the great struggles uh, of the 20th century. Um, One thing that I just picked up this 20th century that I bought from my own collection um, is a piece of camp script um, that was issued uh, at one of the internment camps where Japanese-Americans American citizens uh, were held against their will during World War II, um, and again, these things aren't terribly expensive, but they speak to some of the great issues and traumas that have happened, if not within our lifetime, then within our parents or grandparents' lifetime. So I would I would completely reject the idea that collecting historic numismatic items requires us to collect things of of great age. I think that there are probably still things being collected or being produced today that speak to today's issues. Um, I couldn't tell you what some are, um, but I'm sure they're out there.
0: It's interesting what you said about the Tulsa Pool Hall token. Um, are, there, are there specialists in this area? Or do they have any insight into the issuance of tokens and medals by uh, black-owned businesses during the Jim Crow era? This seems like a, a fascinating collectible area that is both hugely historical and uh, reflective of a past epoch in American history.
1: Well, I don't think anybody's ever ever written sort of the one-stop shop on um, tokens and related items um, of the Jim Crow era. Um, I've got most of the manuscript done that'll see the light of day at some point that incorporates that and, and other related African-American history. Um, I know that the Civil War tokens um, that were produced by African-American merchants Um, during the time of the Civil War. Those have been um, well cataloged in the pages of the Civil War Token Society Journal. Um, But in terms of more modern things, it's catch-as-catch-can, and I'm certain that there are tokens out there that are listed in standard references that no one's ever really figured the story out um, to put two and two together and figure out that um, this business was owned by an African American, that this was a business that um, uh, was targeted to African Americans, this sort of thing, but that's the joy, joy of research, especially in the age of the internet, when Ancestry.com and also newspaper databases and all this make pretty much anybody that you've got a name and location on um, a, a fruitful area for research. Uh, I mean, this doesn't take a rocket scientist anymore. It doesn't even take a library card. You can sit home in your pajamas and pick out a token that you found for four bucks. And find this wonderful dramatic narrative. And I really think that that's sort of the the future of numismatics. I think as the baby boomer generation um, ages and and ends up selling a lot of their stuff that was inspired by a childhood um, attachment to Whitman folders and collecting one of everything and and plugging holes in sets – I think the next generation of collectors will end up collecting things that do begin as these research projects that do tell stories about a certain segment of the American population or a certain chapter of American history. And that's one reason I'm so bullish on Numismatic Americana that it takes nothing to become a collector of this material both in terms of financial barriers of entry and educational barriers of entry. Anybody who decides that... that a certain aspect of history or a certain geographical area is interesting, can go find something interesting and become the world expert on it. Uh, And the the collector base is healthiest when there are things to collect at all price ranges and everybody can be an expert on something.
0: One of the things that I struggle with, and and I don't know if you do too, uh, as a historian, but as someone who looks at numismatics as an echo of broader life, It's when you look back and the more you learn and dig into things, uh, the more more I think you begin to realize that the American experiment never had a truly defined end goal. It was always an experiment, an an unproven thing. I can't imagine that the founding fathers ever expected that this democratic experiment of self-governance as they envisioned it would last over 240 years. In fact, it's changed a great deal. I don't think they expected as you said with Jefferson's quote, that the constitution that they authored would continue essentially intact you know, with revisions as the governing document as it did for so long. I think the founders were highly skeptical of the ability of man and big business interests to not corrupt the government. I think if you look at the struggles of people, uh, when many people think of the social struggles in America, they probably think of the Civil War and the abolition of slavery the civil rights movement in the 1960s, maybe, you know, women's suffrage. But the reality is that there's been untold periods of social struggle and turmoil in American history. There have been abuses waged against immigrants, workers, the poor and indebted, politically unpopular groups, religiously unpopular groups, sexually unpopular groups. The list goes on and on. And it seems like every generation of Americans has its own struggles and they have to work through these and overcome them. But why is it that we always seem to lose sight of these things over time and find ourselves being told that the past was so great and nothing much really bad happened? And if you look at today, things are out of whack because we lost our way. Are we so complacent now that we're just prone to fabulous thinking about this supposedly glorious past?
1: Well, I I think one reason for that is is sort of the state of of history education, um, which though it's gotten... Uh, better in recent years, particularly at a more advanced level, um, for people whose end of their history education stops senior year of high school or junior year or sophomore year or what have you. Um, American history is often presented as an unending narrative of winners, um, and we're fortunate—we live in a country and a culture that's been full of winners. Uh, American history um, is this is this magnificent tapestry of all sorts of great success stories from the success of the founders actually forming this radical experiment in in representative democracy um, to the extraordinary successes of, of our economy um, you know beginning with the, the the first settlement of the new world, um, uh, basically uh, um, interacting with the natives and uh, and and creating a enormous mercantile culture um, where there hadn't been one before so we've got a lot of great successes to talk about. Um, and unfortunately since especially in a high school or elementary school curriculum you just can't talk about everything they end up talking about all of those great victories and all those winners with only a little bit of attention paid to maybe those who weren't so successful maybe those who were left behind or oppressed um or those who uh, uh ended up getting sort of sacrificed on the altar of American democracy um it's it's difficult to create a narrative that includes um, every character and every perspective. Uh, I would like to think that in the modern era, we've done better with that. Um, But in previous generations, I don't think there was any real attempt at that. Um, So, for instance, I used to be a tour guide at Monticello. And uh, I was working there in the late 1990s when uh, the families who were enslaved at Monticello really started to come to the forefront. There was there was documentary research being done on them and real resources being put towards finding out who these people were as individuals and what their stories were, uh, both during and after their enslavement. And and people would come and visit and uh, would be confronted with some of these stories that maybe they hadn't heard when they were visiting in the 50s or 60s or 70s. And they felt like it was an affront, like it was meant to diminish the other story. Um, And I think it's sometimes difficult to present those other narratives um, while at the same time making people understand that this is not meant to diminish some previous narrative. It's just meant to add complexity and facets to this narrative that really belongs to all of us. Um, that to tell a story of African-American interest or to tell a story of labor interest is still telling a story of American historical interest. And it's not just the story of those people uh, to whom it re- directly results or uh, directly relates, but it's really a story that has had an effect on all, all of our present. Um, so I think that's a tough thing to get across um, sort of south of the college level.
0: Do you find that we're in a period of time where we're having conversations about american history has become much more difficult because of the way we identify ourselves you know it doesn't allow us to open up and have a an unguarded conversation with people and to you know take in and appreciate their side of the story uh, and try to actually work through issues like in a civil and reasonable and honest way
1: no i would argue we're in a better spot now in terms of discussing the uh, great breadth and depth of american history than we ever have in the past um, in the past, a lot of these conversations that we're having wouldn't have even been conversations. They would be standardized narratives of of purportedly objective truth. This is history. This is what happened. Um, so I think that the era we're living in now where people can understand that every event or every era can have a a, a real multiplicity of perspectives on it, uh, I think that's much more valuable than than any sort of discussion we've had of history in the past.
0: One of the things that people who know you well in our trade, you know, our hobby, uh, will know is that you're now seeking elected office in the state of South Carolina. I wanted to ask you, while you know you were here, what drew you to do this, and uh, how do you think your background as a numismatist will help you make South Carolina a better place for its citizens?
1: Well, I've always been drawn to the political um, uh, for a few reasons. Um, um, growing up, uh, as I did, I, I grew up very involved in the Catholic Church and its sort of teachings on, on social justice um, and uh, and kind of became aware that the government can be a powerful source for both good and evil, um, but obviously it's a lot better for everybody if it's a source for good. So I, I've kind of come... Um, to politics with that perspective, that that politics um, can actually, you know, benefit people. Uh, Some people don't have that perspective. Um, In terms of of South Carolina, um, having lived here a while, uh, it's become uh, sort of evident that uh, most politicians in the state come from very similar backgrounds, which is not to say demographically, but our state legislature, uh, and this is true of a lot of states, is a part-time state legislature that meets for a few months a year and pays wages that are, uh, I guess, charitably called slightly better than volunteer, Um, which means you end up with people who are um, uh, very wealthy or retired or run businesses that enable them to sort of step aside for a long period of time to actually do their uh, work as a public servant. Uh, And look, as I might, there weren't any coin dealers in there. There were no professional numismatists. There were no historians. And sort of the glory of what I do, particularly with cataloging and whatnot, um, is that I'm able to uh, sort of push all of my work into uh, a few months a year and do a little bit of work here and there, and I can actually uh, pull off a legislator's schedule um, without completely bankrupting my family. Uh, so I figured it was a, a worthwhile thing to to bring sort of uh, some of the lessons that I know about um, the long story of American history, about our, our great successes and about our, uh, our, our perhaps less successful chapters in our story. Um, I, I tend to believe that um, Ecclesiastes was right um, when that book said that there's nothing new under the sun, and there's a, a a quote that's often attributed to Mark Twain, although he probably never said it, that says uh, uh, history doesn't repeat itself, but it sure does rhyme. Uh, and I tend to think that a lot of the problems that we face today rhyme with problems that we've we've maybe experienced in the past but that I might have some insight into so uh, I, I guess i'm I'm willing and able to do the task, so uh, I figured now's a good time to take a shot.
0: Well, um, you know, I can see the negative campaign ad saying John Kralovich is a coin dealer. But, you know, if they go that route, maybe the voters on the other side might think, well, he probably knows all there is to know about the gold standard.
1: You know, if the worst thing they can say about me is that I'm a coin dealer, I'm in pretty good shape. So I'll, I'll take that.
0: All right, John. Good luck with your race. And hopefully you get out there and press the flesh and make some impact with voters. Uh, that you've made uh, with us in the hobby so and hopefully you know the next time you sit down and talk with us we'll uh, have to call you the honorable John Kralovich perfect sounds, sounds like a plan I appreciate the chance to talk today all right thanks John take care if you like this podcast please share with your friends and remember you can download all 90 plus episodes of the coin week podcast for free from the iTunes store For Coin Week, I'm editor Charles Morgan. Till next time, happy collecting.